Hello everybody and welcome to yet another edition, and you must be getting tired of us by now, of Burley Fisher's <laughs> Isolation Station. I'm your host Dan Fuller, I'm joined by my colleague and bro, Ant Hurley. How you doing Ant? I'm good. It's nice to be here in the basement. <laughs> feels like we're in a bunker now. It does feel like we're in a bunker. Uh, maybe like a abandoned bunker, given how much rubbish is down yeah lots of books lots of books and booze and booze um but please please don't break into to us please don't um (laughs) um so we've got lots of new and exciting stuff happening at the shop to open with um we're currently in the process of transforming our basement area into a full-fledged second-hand section which we're all super excited about we're gonna have some great ephemera down here we're gonna have some great classic and contemporary fiction all at reasonable prices and um hopefully within the month that'll be up and running so you guys will be able to come down and uh, there'll be a whole new aspect to the shop which we're super excited about yeah a nice place to chill out and you yeah. know get get stuck into some you know gems that you know you might have a little rummage and find a couple yeah there's gonna be a nice rug down here as well which we're <laughs> very excited about. very excited about our antique afghan rug <laughs> currently on the way carefully selected actually it's actually not a joke <laughs> that is happening it's happening it's happening you guys better believe it um so me and Ant are very excited for our guest today um, he's not only a friend to both of us, but uh, an incredibly wide-ranging and, as you will learn, intelligent uh, and witty thinker. You are about to enter the world of Kurbekistan. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the uh, writer, critic and poet and artist uh, Will Kerbeck. Um, and you'll hear a lot more about him and what he's about coming up very shortly. I don't want to waffle on too much. I'll just leave you on the edge of your seats because this is going to be a big one and I think your minds are going to be blown by the end of it. I think that's pretty safe to say, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to kick off with a reading from one of Will's most recent projects, a monograph essay entitled Techno-Feudalism Rising. This is an excerpt from Techno-Feudalism Rising. The section is entitled Value and Digital Enclosure, How the Price of Nothing Becomes the Value of Everything. There's a fundamental paradox at the heart of techno-feudalism that makes it a unique phenomenon, and that is that so much of the basis of value creation in the techno-feudalist model is material that is of no obvious value. Even now, decades into the online economy, the exact value of key components of data is unknown. The answer that major dealers in and consumers of data today seem to have settled on is that only through knowing everything about a person can a data harvester know anything. In the pre-digital economy, certain forms of data have had clear and apparent value. A classic example would be the price-to-earnings ratio of publicly traded stocks listed in the financial pages of newspapers. Other forms of data have a more nebulous value. For example, a stolen password would appear to only be of value if the user of that password values the data stored in that account. However, the password is in many ways a less valuable form of knowledge than that the account exists in the first place. Information about having several email accounts could well provide more insight into the life of a person than the passwords for any of those given accounts. After all, the algorithms of almost all major email providers are reading every word typed on their platforms already. Where does value lie then? For the moment, value is always deferred. Value is generated by the promise of value that will come when data is broadly or more fully enclosed. 
Only once full subsumption of an individual's entire online existence takes place can the pricing mechanisms become meaningful. This belief leads to the deepest aspect of the paradox of techno-feudalism. Only when we are fully subjected to digital enclosure will we know what di the digital commons was. The process of discovering what is ours, or what belongs to one now, can only take place once whatever that is has been alienated and declared the property of someone else. It should be noted that forming the idea of data capture is itself an act of enclosure. Historic models of production rely on inherent scarcities of material, labor capacity, or time. Models of digital production rely on organization and narrative as their primary engines. The overwhelming majority of digital economic value is derived from labor that is only half-conscious. Having spoken of the rise of self-awareness of managers as a distinct class in the preceding chapter, one should consider the corresponding ebbing of awareness by the producers of digital forms of value, the fact that they are a distinct class and that they are actually laboring. Okay, good evening everybody, or indeed good morning or good afternoon, depending on when you are listening to us. You are listening to History Being Made. This is the first ever isolation station recorded live here at Burley Fisher HQ. Uh, today we are joined by quitter, right, quitter? critic, writer, theorist, musician and sometimes poet, Dr. Habib William Kerbeck, welcome, Will. Thank you very much, Dan. It's uh, good to be uh, in the in the critter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm also joined by my infatigable colleague Ant Hurley. How are you doing, Ant? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice to be back in the shop. It's lovely after isn't all it? those comms we were having over uh, late night phone calls <laughs> in lockdown. <laughs> It's good to see your face with your Dostoevsky t-shirt. <laughs> My display. sick Dostoevsky t-shirt. Um, so we're going to have a fairly wide-ranging discussion today, I think. As you probably uh, guessed, Will's output is very, very broad, and we're going to try and kind of hit all of the big notes about what's going on with him at the moment. He is the author of Ecology of Secrets, Ultralife, and most recently New Adventures, which is as I understand, a retelling of Don Quixote from the perspective of an Instagram influencer. Um, I, I didn't specify which um, <laughs> platform uh, she was using, but it is, in fact, the case, yes. Okay. Uh, an inf a vlogger, really, is probably the the, the exact specification. Yeah. Okay, cool. And we'll, we'll get to that later. But he's also branched out into a bit of theory and has written a book. I think the working title is Techno-Feudalism. Techno-Feudalism Rising, yeah. Techno-Feudalism Rising, okay, cool. So Which we've just finished yeah. and thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, it's a really interesting and kind of piercing look at the contemporary dynamics of uh, content production and cultural creation and kind of what that means for economics, I guess, and, and other things. Could you just kind of explain to us a little bit about this, the history of this concept, how it kind of came to you and... Um, of what it means. Sure. Um, the original essay from which this is based on, uh, this sort of extended essay monograph, I suppose is the like, exact description. Uh, the original text was published by Doggerland in 2016. Mm -hmm. It's a, sort of a short essay um, called Technofeudalism and the Tragedy of the Commons. So the Tragedy of the Commons is an idea from economics, basically which says that if, uh, if a resource is not owned or uh, no one has full administration rights or control over it, then more, more likely than not the incentives to uh, use that resource to exhaustion will uh, will overwhelm the capacity of people to um, 
to preserve it. So this is kind of a classic argument for like libertarians use this uh, and and uh, different forms of thought, uh, different arguments are sort of predicated on the idea that resources will be exhausted mm -hmm. if, if left to their own devices. Mm -hmm. um, however, uh, Nobel laureate in economics Eleanor Ostrom tested this theory. Um, focusing on communities that have what are called common pool resources like fishing grounds or forests things like this and uh, and she found that in cases in most cases what size can uh, have a big impact on it, and that's a big aspect of what the book uh, the, or the monograph is is about but like in in communities where people have a lot of buy-in and a lot of participation tragedy the common situations almost never happen mm -hmm. and so what this book is what this expansion is exploring is this question of the way that what I refer what I refer to as techno feudalism which is a kind of um, what I would say is like a, a subsumation of what we think of as the economy the the global economy based on uh, kind of classic labor capital relationships uh, by what preceded the the rise of capitalism a kind of feudal dynamic mm -hmm. and the way that I, I would argue that that's happening is through the um, the capture sequestration and organization of data by private entities so mm -hmm. people produce data for companies, but they don't actually, um, they don't have any real access to what happens to it afterwards. And so the premise of this, uh, of this text is to expand both, uh, both the idea of how um, this process of data enclosure, which I call it, was what I end up calling it in the book, mm -hmm. um, is existing in tension with uh, the capacity or the possibility of creating new forms of commons and commoning in the world to resist it. And ultimately, you know, I don't think it's resolved, it's very much a live question, mm -hmm. but basically this, this text that's going to come out is about trying to both understand the problem and develop strategies mm -hmm. for um, resisting or at least um, mitigating uh, the worst elements of it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to like start by talking about how you settled upon this like particularly feudal metaphor because um, you know there are plenty of other models kind of floating around at the moment trying to describe what's going on with you know like corporate capture of, of big data um, you know uh, surveillance capitalism is, is one kind of famous model you know some people talk about digital totalitarianism um, so what drove the and the kind of analogy of, of it with feudalism particularly um, well I think I, I should say that um, while I'm using the term techno feudalism I, I do think it can be pernicious to map too directly this new idea onto historical feudalism because mm -hmm. while there are resonances I don't think it's exactly a reproduction of the same thing however um, how would I distinguish it from, say, something like digital totalitarianism or um, Shoshana Zuboff's notion of surveillance uh, capitalism. I mean, these are elements, is what I would say. Like, yeah. uh, um, so with regard to specifically um, Zuboff's notion, I think her her ideas are you know, brilliant and incredibly. Um, like, I don't think a notion of techno feudalism could really exist without that architecture in place to make it comprehensible mm -hmm. to people. So when I wrote the essay in 2016. Zuboff's book hadn't, I don't think it'd come out yet. And so, like, it was a situation where I, I was kind of, you know, grasping for, uh, for a way for people to, like, uh, you know, understand, understand this feeling. And so, like, to me, why did it feel, it felt feudal because it was a divorce of labor and production. Uh, like, basically, labor production and capital were being configured in different ways that, than they had been in historic forms of capitalism. And what I mean by that specifically is that a lot of people who, like, a lot of the production that takes place in techno feudalism resembles. Um, the kind of uh, more like the labor relations of classical feudalism. People produce data, and but they don't. There's not like an hourly wage for it. There's mm -hmm. no rate for it, and so there's a lot of labor going on. But it's it's sort of nebulously compensated. And uh, the notion of a kind of hierarchicalized <laughs> model where uh, a huge amount of people produce a large amount of wealth for a small, an increasingly small um, sector of the population, um, which has sort of certain layers to it. I mean, uh, there is an, a model. Um, 
I believe the writer is um, uh, his name's Fraser. I believe uh, he's he, he's also got a model where he like really maps the exact notion of uh, of contemporary economic relations onto a classic feudal model, mm-hmm. but I think that's a little bit too specified and mm-hmm. the quibbles about it, it's, it's all in the text, but the idea is, I apologize, um, Fraser's not his name, um, however, uh, <laughs> um, anyway, he's, uh, he's, it's a very interesting model that he proposes, but um, the sense of um, large-scale production, uh, hi- hyper-centralization, and, uh, and a nebulous relationship between labor, uh, productivity, capital, and, uh, and compensation mm-hmm. seem to match more feudalism than anything else. And so with regard to digital totalitarianism in the book, um, there, I, I think, you know, digital totalitarianism, it's a really big idea. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit too, um, it's a little too broad to really grasp in a way that I think is actionable. However, in the, in terms of totalitarianism, I do feel there's a strong totalitarian dimension to what we're talking about in the book, what I'm talking about in the book. Sorry about using the royal we. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what I'm talking about in the book and, and, and the way that that moves, where, the way that moves through totalitarian theory is through the work of Sheldon Woolen, who's an American theorist. Mm-hmm. And uh, he proposed, uh, I believe the book's called Democracy Incorporated, Sheldon Woolen proposed a, um, a model of the, for American politics, which was uh, which he described as uh, inverted totalitarianism, which is basically suggested you preserve the um, the power relations, the power dynamics of totalitarianism. They're reproduced, but without a big brother figure, because the system is a lot less vulnerable if it doesn't have a centralized mm-hmm. figure to, uh, to act as a form of resistance or to you know to create the basically resistance is more diffused if you don't if you don't have a like a you know whatever a dictator or a ruler. So his notion of a kind of corporate inverted totalitarianism for the United States was borrowed to like basically in my model what I would describe is what I would describe techno feudalism as uh, is a kind of inverted uh, feudalism. So you have all the structural dynamics in the Woolenian model yeah. of feudalism, but you don't have the classic situation where you can appeal to the lord or who is the, yeah, 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 then yeah, in the yeah, service yeah. of the king and the vassals and all that sort of stuff and you don't have that exact hierarchy because the way that the corporate structure works particularly in the age of publicly traded companies uh, is that in, uh, responsibility is highly diffused and uh, the ability of like re- forms of redundancy within the system of the way that say corporate organization works mm-hmm. um, dilutes the ability to resist it you can form a, another company you can uh, create a like a you know like basically a subsidiary which you can then you know you know, like you can do the nefarious work through the subsidiary and the main corporation would not necessarily know about it. And so that creates this kind of diffuse logic that, that Wollin is talking about. And so that's how I would position it with regard to Zuboff and uh, digital totalitarianism. It's, mm-hmm. It builds on those ideas, but um, I hope in a, in a slightly more... Um, I don't know. It, 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 I hope it. I hope that it has a slightly more polemical dimension. But also, although Zuboff is highly, highly polemical in her writing, uh, I would say that I hope it has this kind of a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a polemical dimension than digital totalitarianism. But also a little bit tighter, a little bit tighter logic. But yeah. of course, it does appeal to a lot of the ideas Zuboff talks about, and, and I hope builds on them in some productive of course, ways. Right. Yeah, you, um, you you pull out that economic theory of uh, externalities, and just for our listeners to break it down a bit, like. What, like, how do you apply that onto the th- the, the the theory that you've made? That basically, the people using these apps or social media channels are actually the people doing the work mm-hmm. for the. Well, so one of the, I mean, in the in the s in the monograph, the basic the premise, uh, this notion of externalities features pretty c- centrally because. Um, 
what I would what would historically have been a cost for a company, the cost of labor for the production of their value or their business model, that was always factored into what a company would expend. So, like, you spend money on labor to produce uh, excess uh, you know, excess capital, and then that's absorbed by the you know by the by the by the cap- capital class or the or the people around the company or wh- whoever's in charge. They absorb that extra ex- excess value. In this case. Labor is written out of the model, and so labor it moves into the realm of what economists call externalities. So labor used to be something you paid for, something you factored into your business model. Now that's outside of your business model. It's inside your business model, but you're no longer paying for it. In the way that, like, so for example, a corporation like Exxon or something like that would say, you know, they they would regard pollution as an externality. It's a thing that they don't have to consider uh, in their business models as they exist. In the in a techno feudalist model, the notion of considering labor in any specific way uh, becomes a lot more. Negative. And labor starts to move into the realm of an externality in a way that it hasn't before and hasn't been possible to be before because of the you know just the nature of production prior to a digital model. So this is people uploading photos, uploading songs, uploading, you know, sharing basically personal data, commenting, whatever. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I mean that's one element of it. But one thing Zuboff also notes that's very uh, very interesting is uh, what what what's called what's referred to as as data exhaust, and this is something that um, one of the key um, one of the key sort of, I guess you would say, like technology theorists within Google, mm. Kenneth Cousier, uh, spoke about uh, basically what d- data exhaust is, is the data that you produce without even knowing you're producing it. So like, you know, if you've uploaded a photograph to Instagram, you know, if you posted a song on SoundCloud, but you don't know that you're producing meaningful data for, say, whatever, whoever, whatever company your smartphone is, is ma- administered by. You don't know that you're doing that necessarily when you get on a bus in London mm-hmm. and they record the data of where the phone is. So you're producing data that's going to be monetized by these these corporations um but you know this is on a level of uh you know awareness that you know is is, it's nothing like normal labor like traditional labor you knew you would go to a factory you'd go to an office or whatever and you knew you were at work and now the the blurriness of the the you know upload a photo uh comments on a twitter post or whatever that model that's the beginning of it but of course on a higher level of uh of sort of abstraction it is also just simply being uh, having a smartphone with you at times, mm. and that can be um, exploited by the, the data that's created can be exploited by these these companies. And of course, you have no recourse to uh, compensation for that in the historical sense of the way that labor was compensated via wages or via other forms of, of benefits. Um, this is really interesting because I and I, I love the idea that um, people are doing labor, but without really understanding that they're doing so at the same time and. Indeed, the fact that the idea that this labour is 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 almost blind, um, and yeah, if you could kind of go into a little bit more detail about like the yeah the what this might lead to, places where this might where this might go, because you know the smartphone was billed as this kind of liberatory device. You know, the internet, especially in the nineties, was awash with utopian discourse. You know, there was this idea that this was a place that states couldn't touch you, where you could say, you know have a free exchange of ideas, etc., etc., etc. And you know, this idea of enclosure that you talk about, and you know, like the, the data being kind of stratified and then pulled away somewhere. Uh, I, also, I also love the image you create of the 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 mirror and the people looking into the room, like yeah, interrogation yeah, room. Like, yeah. um, sorry, Daniel. Yeah. Um, no, so I was just, I was just kind of wondering, like, at the moment, this is 
largely viewed by the public as unpernicious. People, you know, still enthusiastically inviting Alexa into their homes, for example, which is, you know, literally taking that into the, your most infinite, in, infinite, intimate spaces. Infinitely intimate spaces. Yeah, infinitely <laughs> intimate spaces. Um, and you talk a little bit about the Ashley Madison hack mm-hmm. um, of, I think, 2017, I think it was. Yes. Um, and how that is a, that you know, this is an example of, you know, like when this goes wrong, mm-hmm. how this can have, like, genuine consequences to people's lives um, these kind of uh, processes they're not even aware they're taking part in um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about kind of where that might lead you know kind of where this might lead like like and and also could, kind of how we can resist that could you and also could you explain the Ashley Madison sort of case study no certainly so like in the in the like in the in the text in the monograph basically there's this um discussion of uh like how data can be exploited on multiple order levels so like uh, we i used the example of this this the hacking of data of this site in canada canada-based site called ashley madison whereby like people set up extramarital affairs now it, you know obviously you know there's a certain um i don't know i guess a lurid quality to ex- examining that as a um as a case study, but it is also quite telling, I think, for the larger set of issues, because while, uh, you know, having maybe somebody, be, having an account in Ashley Madison might be somewhat embarrassing to them personally, or may even have financial consequences for, uh, you know, their, like, divorce or something like that, um, mm-hmm. what really, to me, is, is interesting about this from the perspective of analysis mm-hmm. is that this creates a space where not only is is the person who's affected by it, uh, not the person having the affair, having the account affected by it, um, but the people getting the data uh, from Ashley Madison, which Ashley Madison, of course, is harvesting data like every other company, uh, either themselves organizing it or using data brokers to organize it and monetize that data in various ways through other forms of social media platforms and, and data-based companies, that the companies that buy that know that, A, someone's having an affair, so ooh, mm-hmm. it might be time to send them adverts about a divorce lawyer, yeah. but they also know that that person's married, so then yeah. it might be a situation where the person their spouse can be the marketing they, they might position their spouse as a possible marketing target yeah. or their children you know children who are facing you know their parents facing divorce might be targets for advertising for mental health yeah, services yeah, yeah. or or various other things you know like perhaps they're vulnerable and they you know so that you could try to sell them some junk food or some other whatever yeah. useless crap you might want to sell but the idea is these are like the second and third order consequences of uh, the way that data is currently a completely alienated from the individual producing mm-hmm. it and B it enters these opaque systems of exchange mm-hmm. that very few people there's a there is a researcher in the uk uh, dr dr bev skeggs uh, sk E-double-G-S, who's done a lot of research on the way Facebook does it, mm-hmm. and her research is highly, um, you know, highly uh, informative for me in, in the book, but also I think um, you know, if somebody wants to appeal to like, uh, see the, co- the compl- sheer complexity of um, second and third order transactions and multiple repackagings of the same data in the way that can be infinitely monetized, um, she, her work is a really good place to start, but I think the, the Ashley Madison model really does, I think, illustrate in some ways the way that mul- like higher tiers of consequences happen not just for the person whose data is taken mm-hmm. so that person technically did data labor without and, and in fact paid for the, probably the account on Ashley yeah. Madison to have their data protected or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. but of course they had to have it protected from hackers not from the people Ashley Madison are selling it to yeah, yeah. and that creates this you know this kind of you know cascade of consequences which I think is a possible area where a kind of techno-feudalist future mm-hmm. um, the dangers of 
this power existing outside of uh, any kind of control except for the corporation's internal mandates mm. exists. Now, I mean, you know, we were talking, you were talking about state power previously, yeah. but the idea is that now these corporations are just substantially more powerful yeah. than a lot of states on Earth, yeah. and they have no uh, actual accountability. I mean, in this country, uh, one could uh, just immediately note that Mark Zuckerberg never turns up when he's summoned uh, by the uh, parliamentary, parliamentary investigations. Uh, he sends Nick Clegg or some other flunky there, <laughs> but he, he does, uh, in the U.S., he does turn up yeah. and that's because the U.S. still could like U.S. still matters to Facebook's yeah. model Britain will just basically be a, a, you know just another mid-sized country that we can roll over if you're Facebook and that, yeah. that's the thinking and you know this isn't a great time to think about democracy and, and you know the examples of it in, in the world but yeah. Yeah, uh, you know we'll miss it when it's gone as, as another writer said in the title <laughs> of her book yeah. you, no, no, you listed um, the several instances where these um Corporations kind of win over states or take them to court, and you. There was one I think that took Egypt for introducing minimum wage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's there are so many examples of this. Of, of basically, uh, you know, the, well, one of the, what the what the mechanism is. The first chapter of the, of the book, uh, the monograph, deals with um, the way the inf the infrastructure that permitted a kind of techno feudalism to rise, and yeah. and one of the key elements is the notion of a free trade agreement, wherein investor rights are prioritized over things like labor rights and things like that. So, for example, a company that uh, you know wants to do business in, I don't know, say say Egypt, they you know they they, they if they. So, for example, in this case, we're still dealing with the realm of state power. But if a U.S. company wants to do that, the U.S. would maybe try to negotiate a free trade agreement with with, with uh, Egypt and uh, have their companies, the companies that would be quote unquote pro providing jobs or whatever, basically would suddenly be able to be based in Egypt. That they might get treatment like a like a national corporation, so they wouldn't face any extra penalties. And the more and more over time, these uh, these free trade agreements, particularly at scale, have increasingly created opaque and non-accessible investor right structures. And the ultimate example is uh, the I. SDS, the investor state dispute settlement uh, I believe it's investor state dispute settlement uh, model wherein uh, entities corporate entities can take uh, the country in w which is subject to the free trade agreement to court for what they regard as lost profits and there's yeah. a laundry list of them in the book but this is another situation wherein basically basically corporations now have huge rights that states do not because yeah. of the, the, the structure of these increasingly pervasive free trade agreements, which created the groundwork, I would say, for a techno-feudalist mm. model to become a global phenomenon. Right. Just talking about the vulnerable kind of uh, states, there's the kind of a big emergence from the essay is um, when you talk about techno-colonialism, yeah. especially yeah, yeah. in Africa and the sort of um, fintech model of mm. banking the unbanked and oh, yeah. just mm. the threat of the implication for... Um, you know, traditional systems of credit, et cetera, with those populations. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and what you, how severe you think that kind of um, threat is? Well, I mean, yeah, I think it really is one of the one of the areas that um, as data enclosure affects countries that have a history of dealing with technology companies. Uh, that's bad, but it's but when these technology companies enter into quote unquote new markets or emerging emerging markets that don't have a, a, a huge level of technological regulation as it is, they're they're given a kind of free reign. And yeah. I mean, the model or like you know, one could talk about the way that companies like the the, the East India Company here or you know, basically sort of marched into uh, you know territories and under the guise of trade but yeah. it, but then that slowly became militarized and then became a colonial situation I, I think there is some legitimate um, 
crossover. I mean, it's not quite the same thing now, but like it, we may be in the early stages of what you know what I refer to as the possibility of a kind of techno-colonial model, and and fin fintech or financial technology is is the you know to not use the neologism they want us to use um, <laughs> uh, is uh, is to uh, uh, like uh, which I always use, um, but like so fintech is is basically a mean for financial technology is a means of creating alternative models to historical models of lending and uh, financial basically financial profit creation and uh, a lot of these entities are like they're known as challenger banks basically mm -hmm. entities that don't have traditional banking functions except for lending and uh, and maybe you know credit extension and they're look they're robustly looking for new markets and often that is in the develop developing or you know um, historically colonial world uh, where um, basically individuals really do need credit so they are actually serving a need but of course it is again in this uh, you know highly privatized highly unaccountable structure and the history of lending uh, micro lending uh, through the Grameen Bank and other entities have not boded well but you know and those were at least a, a lot less opaque than these uh, than these companies that are going in, but to talk about an example, there are there are, you know for example you, you know to get a loan in certain places in the world, you, you they're using alternative forms of data. They're basically using data in the way that what we would recognize as credit reporting yeah, would, would yeah. work in in, in, in sort of uh, what we think of Western Europe and the United States. Uh, instead of a credit report, somebody uses your Facebook feed or whether you've got your contacts and your telephone saved with first and last names. And if you do that, then maybe you're eligible for a loan from this company. And, you know, the rates are, you know, now probably pretty, pretty accessible. But over time, as, as, you know, as they expand their credit base and, you know, take more and more risky people in, the possibility of high, high interest lending, essentially a kind of uh, payday loan structure coming out of this fintech model in, in countries that have already basically had their resources and populations abused by the, you know, the governments and, and companies of, of the, the, you know, the colonial countries that, that originally invaded, that, that, I think that becomes another possibility. It becomes a, you know, history repeating itself mm -hmm. uh, as tragedy and super tragedy in, yeah. in the future. And, uh, you know, that is, that is a really genuine concern of what the next step, if, if and in fact, if the form of digital enclosure that is already underway in, in like, what we'd say Western Europe, United States, if that becomes, that reaches a kind of total, uh, you know, that reaches real hegemony, then that I think will be the next frontier. And, and I'm not sure the institutions are all, all always uh, in the best shape to handle them there. There are lots of places in the developing world where Facebook is essentially the internet because lots of free smartphones. Phones, yes, now. of course, yeah. Um, and, you know, that not only is that like a, pretty outrageous way for people to interact the in with the with the internet um, it's kind of like a hyper enclosure strategy. I mean, yeah, it's moving from you know techno feudalism to techno vampirism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like the end state. It's just basically everyone is just this blood pool from which uh, you know Facebook <laughs> drains every f aspect of life force. And yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This idea that you have full data sequestration yeah. through, uh, like you know, say a Facebook phone or something like that, where everything literally goes back to them. I mean, yeah. they, Facebook tries to make every aspect of the internet like that. Yeah. But that, in that case, you're completely caught up in and of course if, if financial institutions are piggybacking off the off off those in those phones then you know that that creates particularly given the fact that facebook is developing this cryptocurrency libra uh, yeah, or yeah, like yeah, they yeah. say they are i mean it hasn't really haven't really <laughs> reached much out of that may have just been a means of generating good headlines for them when they were really really in deep trouble uh with the u.s congress but uh if they develop something like their own currency then their capacity to lend and to create and to yeah. basically manage the totality of someone's financial future uh, is is just uh, it reaches exponential proportions in in places where they are the predominant internet provider yeah. or internet access point um, 
so this is all quite worrying stuff, um, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about um, kind of strategies of resistance that you, you talk about, and, and you kind of talk about how this is a polemic, but there's an attempt to not just kind of like bow down in front of despair and just mm-hmm. kind of stare off wistfully into the distance. You do talk about ways that we, <laughs> you, do, you talk about ways that we might be able to, um, as kind of citizens, be able to resist this process and then potentially reverse it. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think one of the, the key elements really is identifying the problem, and I hope this you know, this monograph will be a step in that process uh-huh. of, of saying, okay, you know, they're all you have this ambient feeling that stuff is happening that you're not really a party to in terms of having any agency over it, and, uh, you know, what, is it, what does it really look like? And so hopefully the schematic is the beginning of the process, and I hope the monograph is a kind of schematic, but like on a more practical level, one of the key elements is, of course, as we've been speaking about digital labor, mm-hmm. is creating a new relationship of digital labor uh, as a as a legal uh, creating digital labor as a legally justiciable uh, concept. And I think that you know really need. I mean, in some cases, it is recognized, you know, but it, it's not recognized at scale, at mm-hmm. sufficient scale, to make that actionable. Particularly with regard to people who are just doing stuff like posting pictures, or they're, or as I said, like riding the tube with a phone in their pocket and the, and, and Google knowing about that because you're using an Android phone. And so, creating a way that that um, that that set of digital relationships are, are adequately monetized and adequately accessible and adequately, um, you know, basically democratic, democratized. That's the big part of it, and that will involve advocacy, and that will involve political agitation. Some of it more formal, and some of it more uh, more sort of radical in terms of creating alternatives. But I mean, but you know, the the scale of these institutions is that you know, creating an alternative is is just going to be like a feel good operation. So so there has to be large scale legal legal redress on this. Like yeah. there's the notion also of a, a meaningful and bi- I mean the, the European uh, General Agreement on Data Protection is, is kind of a kind of a first step in this direction. Yeah. But I, you know it's it's you know it's so porous that it's it's very you know very difficult to really see that as a major victory. But then the idea of people having a kind of uh, having the capacity to. Um, have a, yeah, so there's the transparency issue, there's the financial issue, but then there's also the organizational issue. Yeah. And, and I think one of the key elements is finding, uh, you know, is, is creating a, a, a space for this, a, yeah. a space for this discussion. And and, uh, and that involves... Um, that involves the work of activists, and, yeah. and that will be that will be a key part of, of however however uh, it is redressed in the future. But so yeah. I mean, it's it's a kind of sliding scale from technical solutions, legal solutions, and of course activist solutions. Uh-huh. Uh, and you know, I think that's it's ongoing, but um, but it, it is possible because you know one of the things that, you know they are still they are still controllable. These yeah. companies are still just within the ambit of controllability. Yeah. And the more the people cede to them, the more they'll take. And and someday you might wake up in a situation where it's already too late. But yeah. you know. A, you know, a key element is is not uh, is not despairing. Is not sort of saying, oh, you know, it's over, it's done. It's, it's not over yet because yeah. Mark Zuckerberg still turns up at least to the U.S. Congress. Yeah. And if the European Union becomes more aggressive about it, then it, it is possible that that is another, which is another huge market. And of course, uh, activists uh, throughout China, Nigeria, another major frontier where a lot of uh, where a lot of like technological frontiers are being established. Those, those I mean, and then this feeds into the notion of techno-colonialism. I mean, uh, you know, it's not directly related to specifically, you know, redress of this, but uh, a redress of colonial injustices also will be a key element of creating the uh, 
the healthy democratic polity required to keep these companies from hiding in, in countries where there are light regulation regimes or which are designed to be essentially offshore uh, sinks for their uh, offshore incubators for, for new bad ideas that could, could affect us all. So, you know, it's, it's an agenda that takes in almost everything, but you just find a place within it yeah. and, uh, and find a place to work on that, on those projects. And I think there is, there are genuinely tremendous possibilities of, of preventing the worst from happening yeah. still. Five years from now, may not be the case. <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for that uh, whistle-stop uh, look at techno-feudalism. And... Inside our new techno hell. <laughs> okay. And what is to be done, to quote uh, another man. Uh, <laughs> um, so... Firstly, when's it coming out and where will people be able to access it? It'll be later this year and the Sandberg Institute will be uh, handling publication. Um, I don't know the full information about availability yet. Um, I'm not sure what the situation is with Britain, but um, it certainly will be uh, online. There'll be some, uh, at least some large-scale excerpts that people can access easily. And then when the actual text comes out... um, probably should be able to get it in most at least art bookshops <laughs> and Burley Fisher books of course and needless to say. <laughs> of course <laughs> great <laughs> it'll be in the window <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about new adventures so you decided to rewrite Don Quixote de la Mancha for the post 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 modern age uh that's a bold move. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about how that process came to be? Um, how did it actually come to be? I'm trying to think. Like, it was just an idea that I had for a long time that, like, you know, Quixote is such a... I mean, it was a book I had a lot of problems reading. I was I started reading it on tour uh, one time when I was in band, and I left the book in a hotel somewhere. Then I, I, I was trying to read it somewhere else, and I, I left it on a train. And so it became this, like, this thing where I was like, how... You know, like, I mean, this, you know, obviously the, the beginning of the modern novel. And so yeah. for me, it was like this, uh, this thing where I was like, how can I really call myself a writer without having kind of really gone to the roots? I mean, okay, there are people who'd say Apuleius, the golden ass, but that's pre, <laughs> pre-modern. Uh, and, yeah, there are many other ways that this could, this could we could just sit here and talk about possible first novels but, <laughs> but the important thing is that um so eventually like finally having read it i was I, you know i was really struck by the parallels between the kind of um like the kind of i guess fake it till you make it mentality that characterizes yeah. the adventures of don quixote and the you know the world of like internet influencing and, and vlogging in particular which is what like um that really it felt like you know it was the adventures that you have in a, in a vlog you know like you do you set up these crazy scenarios where you kind of supposedly come out as a hero yeah. and that's really pretty much what most vlogs consist of yeah. and so i was like well this is the maybe this is the syntax uh but you know like how do you actually like how do you reproduce these you know these kind of nutty adventures and then of course so i sort of started to like do it in parallel where like okay if you were going to do the windmills thing what yeah, would it be yeah, yeah. if you were going to do the in that they stay in what would that be and and surprisingly there, there's a lot of parallels yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of parallels between a delusional uh, knight and uh, delusional uh, vlogger <laughs> can you give us one sort of type of parallel if, for example the in so i'll give you i think the hardest one <laughs> Ever, like uh, the end becomes two places. There's one in one becomes an adventure in Dubai, and one becomes an adventure in a spa in the West Country of Britain. But uh, but for me, the one that really presented this challenge is is this episode where Quixote and Sancho are like. They're, they're like hearing this noise and scaring the shit yeah. out of them and they think it's like monsters or something <laughs> and, and then they go to like a fulling mill it turns out it's just a fulling mill yeah. that they're all scared of and they're like we better not tell anyone that this is what we were doing and, <laughs> and so for me what I was like how in the world am I going to reproduce this and so I got, I got kind of uh, I, I just kind of 
I just kind of, like, I was stumped on that one for a while, and then, like, I, I just somehow, I remembered that there's a place called Pudding Mill Lane in London, yeah. and I was like, let's go to Pudding Mill Lane and see if I can map a Fulling Mill incident onto this, and of course, there are all these just abandoned buildings there, uh, or at least, you know, they're abandoned, but you can't get anywhere near them, yeah. so they're obviously investment properties at some point, so, like, I kind of imagined this equally um, sort of spectral, uh, you know, like, incident uh, related to one of these empty buildings yeah. there, and it was kind of like, you know, I mean, that was the biggest reach, I would say. But like it also like it was also like again kind of surprisingly uh, available once one thinks about it. Awesome, um, and yeah. So in, in in terms of so what kind of what does it feel like when you're like okay, there's this classic piece of literature that I want to like kind of engage with, and it's like obviously super textually important for many 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 works. Uh, kind of what was like how did it feel doing that was it was there a kind of like apprehension were you, were you just like screw it I'm just going to do it or like kind of like what was the creative process this was like? definitely the hardest book I've ever written in my yeah. entire life it took years to work out and lots of back and forth lots of like you know trying to get the voice of the main character right that was that was um extremely difficult but what kind of gave me some uh I guess you would say like uh, inspiration were all the like dummies who wrote versions of Quixote <laughs> during the lifetime yeah, of Miguel yeah, yeah. de Cervantes, thus producing the second half of Don Quixote, which was a response to their, like, you know, pirated versions. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, well, you know, this is like a, this is like, you know, you might think of it as a pirated version of the Don Quixote story, which, in you know, and and obviously that 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 the irony and, and the hilarity of it became irresistible to me personally. And so like I was just like, okay, well I'm writing my pirate Quixote now, and uh, you know we'll see what happens. And of course it's you know a notoriously cursed book, uh, people say. And I have to say, I, I think the curse maintains because there were plenty of complications along the way of of producing it. Um, and uh, and you know it, it was it was daunting, but once you get so deep into something, the determination to see it through sort of takes over. Yeah. At least in my case, it certainly does. I mean maybe. Maybe this is like one of those like knowing when to quit quitting yeah. while you're ahead like maybe someone could give me a TED talk about that yeah. sometime but or when you're decently behind uh, <laughs> but but I bet I saw it through and it was it was finished and it was like yeah well the trepidation that meets any writer I think uh, at the beginning of any book particularly something with a historical parallel is, is there uh, also, I think in a way that lends you an architecture to work with and, yeah. and in some ways the form can take over or at least when you're stuck, provide you an out. Like, so you're stuck on the trying to find fulling mills house. Well, why don't you try to uh, think about what the windmill incident would look yeah. like? And, and, you know, and so it becomes uh, like a kind of game with yourself mm -hmm. and, you know, hopefully a funny one, but, you know. Windmill in Brixton, perhaps? <laughs> no, no, you, you have to wait. It's in Aberdeenshire, the, uh, the, the uh, windmill in question. So your first, I mean, you've, you've written, I mean, um, Craig, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I only know of Ultralife, the previous book to this, the novel, and the, the first one before that I read was Ecology of Secrets. Mm -hmm. And I think that book is, whilst being hilariously funny, it's also incredibly dark. Yeah, and it's yeah. a lot of fun and it's just wild. Um, what I was most struck about when reading that was, um, and we've almost sold out of copies in the shop. We have one one left, which has actually just been recently put aside. So uh -oh. it might be it might be sold get out. On but, uh, get on it. Get on it. Get on it if you haven't yeah. got it. Um, but yeah, what. I just, when I read that, I was so struck about how accurate your colloquial voice, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. especially the police was, <laughs> yeah. like, but just the Englishness of it. And, but I just felt like, you know, it was kind of, I was, we were behind the sort of, yeah. um, we were sort of inside the Met because it's about um, the police group that infiltrates um, activists mm -hmm. um, who are campaigning for 
uh, climate change policy, etc. Could you just talk a bit about you know where that came from and yeah, just you know you here in London and sure. I mean, the book originated um, like well, and I should say they're published both Ultra Life and Ecology of Secrets are published from Arcadia Mesa, which is a great South London uh, gallery yeah, and publisher. Yeah, yeah and right. uh, they're actually they're in Central London now, but like uh, nevertheless, uh, they are still doing the great gallery and publishing project. They have a lot of great writers there, from Linda Stupart to. Uh, Jakob Palaspo, the list goes on and on. Anyway, I, I could sit here and do an advert for them. But the important thing is that they, it was at the behest of one of the uh, one of the gallery directors. Uh, we we did a sort of like a night where I'd done some performance, uh, like a reading or something there, and we we met the next day and, and or, or like later in the month or something, and, and they were like, um, you know, do you have anything longer, like a like a book or something we could maybe or some short stories? And I was like, well, I don't, but I, I'll see if I can think anything up. And it was this is around the time that and people who live in Britain will probably know this, but if you don't live in Britain at that time. Maybe this would be news. Um, there was just story after story was appearing in the newspaper of these, like, basically deep cover police agents who'd infiltrated um, environmental organizations. In particular, there was one where I, I'd heard about the protest. It was a, basically a protest against a power station called King's North, and it was like a hugely successful protest. Uh, I believe uh, one of the biggest, at, the, at that time, one of the like most successful environmental protests in the history of the country. And it turned out that the, the police had been integral to the execution of this protest. And I was sorry, like, it's kind of like, well, there should be like a cop in every single one of these environmental <laughs> groups. And so, and it turned out there was. Um, yeah. And so, and so that kind of like, particularly the story of this guy, Mark, Detective Mark Kennedy, who was uh, outed as just basically having affairs with people in these okay. groups and establishing just these odious, um, you know, uh, like entrapment things. But then he like went, he, he sort of went over to the other side at a certain point because he, I guess, maybe felt guilt or like yeah. wanted to have a book deal or something like that. And uh, and he decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to just say like, yeah, I was, I was in this thing yeah. and, you know, maybe they're right and maybe things are good uh, and all this sort of stuff. And so he, he kind of, you know, created this like identity of this like repentant, uh, you know, spy. And so I kind of got to thinking about like what would happen if you know if the, if if you know the police and you know decided or espionage um, entities within the country decided what would yeah you know, how can we avoid the Mark Kennedy phenomenon of him basically essentially uh, becoming part of the of the environmental movement and and it seemed to me the most effective way to do that would be to create an entire cell that was nothing but police officers uh, but like of course highly resourced and highly capable and so that they could catch you know catch quote unquote uh, you know activists by uh, by induction and uh, as it were and uh, and so the idea is that ultimately in the book the, the police decide that they want to uh, you know also become environmental activists like in real life and so uh, and so basically the hilarity ensues when the police department uh, decides to pursue its own uh, officer oh, its rogue officers and, uh, and thus unfolds the narrative but it's that's where that came from and it course came out of uh, during a period where I was doing a PhD in London yeah I mean I'm not going to spoil it but there's some incredible moments yeah. one that involves a whale and that's sea palace yeah it's just I don't know it's kind of like I don't know how I got there but I was totally buying it yeah. Was, yeah it's just absolutely brilliant um yeah so following on my answer I kind of want to talk a little about like kind of your kind of use of British idiom and, and British culture and British locations like mm -hmm. You know, there's a, an early scene set in the town of Newquay, which, you know, for a certain demographic of teenagers in the noughties was kind of like a post-exam mecca. Uh, yeah, and to me, it didn't feel like the work of an American writer. The highest praise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, like, like as a writer, how do you... 
when you like how do you grasp for that for that authenticity of, of voice um, I mean that takes a lot of work and that yeah. takes I mean listening is so crucial like mm-hmm. I mean you know we're in this moment where a lot of people or the authenticity and the the positioning of people who've written fictional works is now on the table is a live question like why do you why would you tell a story like this you yeah. don't have this experience or this lived um, reality or whatever and I think a lot of that's really valid yeah but I think also a lot of the books that are in the crosshairs on that really often frequently don't feel like they're very lived in like you know they do feel tacked on like, Ooh, this would be a good story if I were you know like somebody who was like I don't know like shipped in a shipping container or something like that whatever you know, like the the trauma or the difficulties or the struggles that they depict feel often very plot orientated whereas like I always try to center in a in a character and I always try to find a a real world analog to any character I would be like writing and paying attention, listening carefully to what people say, listening carefully to how people interact with each other, being, uh, you know, uh, in immersed, you know, not day tripping in someone else's culture. Mm-hmm. So basically I just say, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, I feel like that should be like a job requirement of anyone who wants to, to write, you know, is to, is to, to listen and to work and, and to care about what they're, you know, what the, the people they're writing about and the, the, the culture that they're addressing and to be a part of it is, is, to be a part of like the culture that you're describing, it's not always possible, not always easy, particularly with like historical fiction. But yeah. you know, it's worth the effort every time, and uh, and I hope that I get that right more often than I get it wrong. But everybody gets it wrong. Yeah. Well, that book certainly, I think, for me, succeeds, and yeah, uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, so just to like round up, um, what what's next for you, and what's uh, what is, what are the next, and where can people get hold of your material if they want to read something and of course um, well I write for a lot of like I write a lot of journalism as well art criticism primarily Berlin Art Link I write for them I write for Flash Art as well um, of course if you want the books Arcadia Misa uh, you can buy them directly there but you're fine our bookstores in uh, East London <laughs> including Burley Fisher are also a possibility um, and then uh, uh, New Adventures is also available from Left Gallery which is left.gallery if you want to find it on the internet it's run by a Dutch artist called Harm Van den Dorpel uh, he specializes in what he calls uh, downloadable digital objects and so he's he's designed the book uh, for a digital for digital download there um, that's, is that New Adventures? That's New Adventures okay. yeah. yeah and then next year I'll have a novel called Best Practices coming out with a publisher called Moist and at the moment I'm working on a couple things but primarily a short story collection which I hope maybe you know will be out next year at some point we'll see and uh, you also uh, you've just uh, completed recording some music in London can you tell us about that Uh, it's hard to know my background is as a musician and so like this is like um, the culmination of like two years of uh, songs playing in my head and uh, uh, that have just sort of kept me up at nights for a while. Nice and so, but that's not the title. <laughs> no, the title is <laughs> Neural Dust. Uh, and so uh, hopefully that'll be done in October. And that's more of a, uh, I don't know, it, we'll see what it ultimately ends up being but like it is you know a collection of 10 songs and hopefully will it be released under the name Will Kirby um, it'll be released under the name Dirtanian so there is a lot going on yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot going on there there's always a lot going as on as they we say yeah. Neural Dust by Dirtanian that will be the hope it's yeah. coming um, and, and, and as I understand well you're going to be returning back to Berlin very mm-hmm. soon um, maybe even you'll be there by the time of, of broadcast um 
so what in London, which, what venue, what place in London will you miss the most? If you were going to have a day in London, where yeah. would you, what, what would be your pit stop? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> very, that's <laughs> very, I mean, this is just, this is the best, uh, the best place, uh, I think. Um, Berlin's great, I love it, um, but London's home in a way. And uh, and I guess, you know, what would it be like? I mean, yeah, you you want your English breakfast, so maybe you go to Mess Cafe on Amherst Road. You want your, uh, you want your uh, sort of very, you know, you want a good cup of coffee, so maybe you go to Vagabond on Holloway Road. You want your, uh, your quality lunch, so you would have gone maybe to the Pacific Social Club on Clarence Road, but that's gone now, so maybe now you're... Is that you're, gone? Yeah, no, I think wow. it's a record shop now. Uh, wow. Or at least it looked like, I went by it yesterday and there was no food stuff, so it's now just like a record shop. But, but you know, maybe you get a lunch, maybe you eat out to help out on a Monday through Wednesday and you, you go to some place you can't normally afford then you know then it's like late afternoon so you, you know you want maybe you drop into Burley Fisher books and you get a cup hey. of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that or Cafe 1001 which is actually pretty tolerable during the day uh, on Brick Lane uh, then you know then you're in central London it's you know it's time for beer so you go to the Holborn Whippet or you go to uh, maybe the Nellie Dean uh, or maybe you go to uh, the Retro Bar or maybe you know 101 places that will be disappeared Retro probably bar, by the time right. yeah, excellent place uh, or if you're in South London, maybe who knows? You're at the Hermit's Cave. You're at the, you know, whatever. Like, uh, yeah, the, uh, like the Brixton Windmill. You know, as, as you as you reference, there are so many, so many great places, so many endless, endless iterations of London, and you're just, uh, you know, and it's just a privilege to be here, uh, and I love it every time I come, and I just, you know, yeah, I mean, I always, always miss it terribly when I'm away. But Berlin, of course, is also a city of infinite narratives too. Indeed. It's also been a pleasure to have you here yeah, thank this you so evening. Much for thank us. you guys. Thank, thank you. Thank you, you so to Sam much. as well. Um, yeah, and to Sam who can't be here, but we'll be here for the next instalment. And um, yeah, well, thanks again. Cheers, Sam. Cheers, so much, guys. Bye. Cheers. Okay, guys, I mean, I'm sure you all need to lie down after all of that. But we've got one more uh, little gem lined up for you. Um, and thank you so much to Will for coming on the show on behalf of all of us at yeah. the shop. It was an absolute pleasure. Big up, Will. He's now in Berlin and we miss him greatly. We miss him dearly. Um, and we're going to finish off with a reading from his Madcap Don Quixote remake. Uh, new adventures which will be available uh, in ebook form from Burley Fisher's website um, so check out our, our web shop and you'll be able to get a copy if you like what you hear and we're sure that you will um, that's all from me and Anne um, yeah we'll see you in the shop see you in the shop and get ready because big changes are afoot love you all So if you follow the vlog regularly, you probably already know that I'm not like super into drugs like a lot of people. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like to party as much as the next person. And there are times when like MDMA or something can really make a night extra special or whatever. Or like a few puffs from a joint can be exactly the right thing in a gig or to help you like wind down after a long day working. Or like sometimes a few lines can keep you going when you should probably already be asleep and you need to work. Or like a bump of speed can really get you off your lazy ass when otherwise you wouldn't be doing anything at all all day. Or, like, sometimes cake can take you to a place where you've never been before, or like sometimes at a birthday party or something, only a little bit of hashish will do, or like mushrooms at a festival, or even acid once in a great, great while, or even a little tincture of opium can, like, totally calm your nerves at, like, a steampunk LARP or whatever. 
like there are even those moments when Valium kind of get you help help you get to sleep when you know you need to but you can't shut your brain off but like I was saying like you know I'm not really a drugs person in any serious way but like after the whole thing with the wind turbine I needed to get away and like when I say get away I mean really get away from like all the troubles and thoughts that that brought up and the stress of having to like deal with the police and all these like crazy anti-environment trolls were like you like the environment so much why don't you let me turn you into a compost bitch so like to kind of press the reset button in my mind i thought maybe it would be a good idea to like actually try some ayahuasca which i've heard like tons and tons of good things about how does that happen well like you probably remember a few years ago a guy who had a fucking sick men's fashion and tattoo insta feed carlos agenda he was like on this level of like total genius male model and poet and he could totally talk to you for hours about like any subject like sarongs or watch band or nail clippers or french symbolist poetry or whatever he was like so so smart and super sensitive to you know like that one poem he wrote it was like really big in 2015 when poetry in general was kind of in the one that was like in the reflection of my apple watch i saw the abyss i also saw the time i was late it was like so deep anyway so carlos and i met at a party for a new designer clemens ordinary who's like probably best known for men's shirts but at the time he was introducing this like totally sick wristwear collection which is like totally unisex in every way and i was like to myself this would make a very good blog so i decided to trek out to the opening party the party was in a former rendering plant in East Ham. It was like the coolest environment possible. Like all these shirts were like totally hung in this dramatic way. Like they were the carcasses of animals on hooks. And I was kind of just like casually streaming and like looking over the fabrics and like admiring these really cool cuffs on this very nice shredded velvet shirt that was like suspended by a hook in the tail and another one in the collar. And the arms were drooping down on either side like the person and it would be face down. And I was like kind of squatting down to shoot the cuffs. And I could see in the background these like amazing see-through hot pants with this amazing clamshell codpiece on underneath. And like at this point, I totally forgot about the shirt and I was transfixed by this amazing pair of hot pants. Like you could see there was like a glass curve that like covered the codpiece, almost like one of those like snow globes you can buy. And if you looked, you could see two little goldfish swimming around in it. I like snapped it and posted it from like my squatting position. It was like the most like shot in my feet for like that month in like seconds. So I stood up and like I was face to face with Carlos Agenda. He had this like very cool beard circle positioned on his face and like his mustache cut through the circle. And he saw me looking at it and he was like, it's Boyle's law of gases. I shave a different fundamental scientific law into my facial hair every month. Well, my barber does. And I was like, that's so cool. I'm Donna. Mm -hmm.